These Sunday mornings we're looking at 2 Timothy, the second letter of Paul to Timothy. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 14 to 18 this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 14. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy the faith of some. There are truths then that need to be constantly brought to the church, brought by the church, rather, to the world. That the living God created all things in the beginning, that he made us uniquely in his image and likeness. But that we are then a fallen race, is none righteous, no, not one. But that God has then provided a savior, his son, Jesus Christ. And he desires all men to turn from their unbelief and uh, entrust themselves to him. And that's the message that we constantly bring and will always bring to the world. And then there are messages that we bring also to the church. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. He cannot deny himself. And truths like that then that Paul has just referred to, faithful, trustworthy sayings. And uh, Paul believes that there are some then of cardinal and central importance for every Christian. Keep reminding your congregation in Ephesus about them, he says, Timothy. But you see, they are costly truths. And they are radical truths. And so very often, we religious people, we pay lip service to them. And there is no heart obedience. There's a form of godliness, but the power of godliness isn't manifested in our lives. And that's a great tragedy. Because uh, these truths are life-transforming truths. But if they are marginalized and not understood, then they don't help you. So, Paul says, keep reminding the people of them. It may be irksome to you, but it's necessary. Do it as freshly as you can. Let the preacher creep up in a sermon and suddenly show the implications of what they are nodding to and understanding and what that means for your life and your words. Don't think, well, uh, this is what I've told, we've been told before. You think of the first three Gospels, not John's Gospel now, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called Synoptic Gospels, because there's a sort of synopsis of the three of them. They repeat the same uh, warnings occur again and again in a Gospel, and then they occur also in Matthew and Mark and Luke, 
The three Gospels tell us there are many repetitions. We need to be reminded of them. When I was uh, uh, in junior school, I had poor teachers. I had a mind like a sponge uh, and needed the truth to be poured in. I remember when I went to grammar school, uh, one day I was uh, sitting at the side of a classroom and we were having what was called silent reading. And the teacher was getting on with other things. And I could hear through the door, through the wall, I could hear the the English teacher next door and he was teaching a class about poetry. And he read to them um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Bells. And I could remember that first verse from listening to him uh, speaking it to them. Hear the... Hear the sledges with their bells, silver bells, what a world of merriment their merrily foretells. How they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night with the stars that oversprinkle with a crystalline delight, kicking time, time, time in a sort of rubric line with a tinting oblation that so musically swells from the bells, 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 from the jingling and the tinkling of the bells. Here we are. Seventy years later, I can still remember that poem. I wish I'd had other teachers who had given me truths of literature and truths of history and truths of science and truths of Christianity. And I'd read them vigorously, like that man. Me listening through the wall to him, he never taught me. The Latin writer Seneca He had 200 uh, pupils in his class. And he could uh, pause and he could say to one, two, three of them, give me a line of poetry. And then they they would give him a line. And he would continue it. And he would give the lines before it. Every time, without fail, whatever lines were tossed out to him from the class, Seneca knew all of Latin poetry. They say he could even recite them backwards. The theologian Thomas Aquinas is said to remember everything that his teachers had ever taught him. Timothy, keep reminding the people, keep repeating, keep telling them these things. The formidable uh, Susanna Wesley, John and Charles' mother. Um, She was telling a servant girl about a task that she was to perform, and the girl wasn't doing it, and she told her again and again and again and again. And one of the Wesley children was quite exasperated, and she said, Mother, you told Mary to do that. You must have told her 20 times. But if I'd stopped at 19, she wouldn't have done it. Susanna said. Keep reminding them of these things. So what is uh, Timothy to teach his congregation? And uh, Paul tells him in the text before us. There is misbehavior that a Christian church must avoid at all costs. And then there are standards that uh, Timothy must keep. And we look at it through those two lenses then. Verses 14, 15, and 16 of Second Timothy chapter 2. 
Firstly, Timothy is to exhort the congregation about quarreling over words, about words, and godless chatter. That's the first thing. talks about the tongue. Once it seemed to me, whenever one visited the doctor, the doctor would invariably say to you, put out your tongue. And looking at your tongue would be the, he would be able to judge the state of your health, your liver and your kidneys and general health. It was a monitor. It was a barometer. It was an identity card. I don't know if they do that. They haven't done that for me or Yola in, in the last years. I'm sure they must do it. You, you can tell me afterwards whether, when was the last time a doctor said to me, now show me your tongue. The tongue is a monitor of where we are spiritually. How mature, how holy, how God-pleasing we are. It is possible to tell from our tongues and our lips the state of our hearts and with what we are feeding our hearts. The tongue is set in a slippery place and it can easily let things slip out and create great damage. There was a Greek philosopher And he would say, say something to me so that I can see you. In most evangelical congregations, it's not our actions that show our spiritual condition, but our words, sharp words, painful words, unwise words, belligerent, self-confident words, or then loving, patient, gentle Wise words. So Paul tells Timothy, now this, you remember, you must do this when you speak to the church. Before God, he says, before God, he brings a solemn affirmation down. Before God, I warn you about quarreling about words and about godless chatter. You see how he returns to it a a sentence later in our text. There were word wars There was ungodly chatter in a gospel church at a time of great awakening and spiritual power and growth and vitality in the first century. So we're not to be surprised if then that exists today. When church members get angry with one another and frustrated and jealous, then they can descend to that sort of thing. It is valueless, says Paul. It is useless but it ruins those who listen. That's what Paul says. It ruins them. It ruins your listeners. You think of uh, characters in Pilgrim's Progress now. You think of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. You think of Mr. Talkative. Not rough men, not violent men. Their only weapon was their tongues. And they had a devastating impact on the people they spoke to. They had what James, in that passage of scripture that I I read to you, what James calls an unbridled tongue. So you put a bit, he says, in a horse's mouth, and uh, by the bridle and the bit, then, 
that horse is directed and, and controlled. You get a great shire horse, a magnificent beast, eight feet high, say, and uh, immensely strong. He can be controlled by a little bit of metal, just uh, six feet in length, which fits into his mouth. What damage uh, a runaway horse can do, a horse that isn't bridled, that isn't controlled. He can cause cars to crash. He himself can be killed. The unbridled tongue ruins those who listen. And this, you know, is where many sins start. Uh, when there are bank robbers, then we see pictures of them meeting together, sitting in a pub together. And they meet together for weeks and months, planning the bank robbery. The theft of millions is started with the tongue speaking. Or when a man wants to seduce a woman, he, uh, he smiles at her and then he makes her laugh and he compliments her because he wants his way with her. When men wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, it was with their tongues that they began. Crucify him, crucify him. They shouted out. We dishonor our mothers and fathers by our tongues. Children covet with their tongues. They, they pull the aprons and skirts of their, of their mothers and their fathers. And they say, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Please, daddy, please, daddy. It's all godless chatter. Now, are you aware of your need to bridle your tongue? King David knew it. King David in Psalm 141. This is what he prayed. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Remember how he seduced Bathsheba. He did it with his tongue. Remember how he sent an order with his lips to his generals to see that Uriah, her husband, would be killed with his lips. He later learned how he needed to keep a watch over the door of his lips and guard his mouth because of the crimes that his words would cause. He was a soldier, and so the natural image that he would use then for his battle with sin was not that of an athlete, it was that of a military man, a watchman, a a sentry is a soldier on guard on the walls. There were soldiers on guard of the walls in Damascus. When the governor, Aretas, uh, sent out orders that uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, should be arrested. And they were watching. They didn't want anyone to leave Damascus, especially. They didn't want him to leave. And so the sentries were there on guard and... He was let down, you remember, by a basket from a window in the wall. Now you're with me now, you're following what I have to say. Let's name the four soldiers who must be the sentries on duty, watching the door of our lips, what comes out. First there is verity, in other words, truth. Verity always asks, is that right? Is that true, what you're saying about that person? Or are they distorted words and exaggerated words and deceitful words? And if they are 
not wholly true, then they must go back into your mind and stay there. And second, there is the next sentry, and his name is Charity, that is, love. And he's hot who goes there. He says, does the mouth want to speak? Because love is motivating it to speak. If you're going to criticize another person, then you speak the truth, yes, but you speak in love, particularly. If not, then the watchman charity will say, no, no, you, you don't come out. And thirdly, another sentry marches up, and his name is Necessity. He interrogates the tongue too. He says, is it really necessary for you to say these things? Must it come out of your mind, those vocables, and be repeated? If you know it's not necessary, send it back to your mind. And then the fourth and the final century arrives, and he is called Wisdom. And soldier wisdom interrogates you as to whether it wouldn't have been better to have said it in a week's time, or a month's time, or a year's time. Only if our words meet the demands of these four watchmen, truth and love and uh, necessity and wisdom, may we speak. So we pray what David prayed. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And so Paul tells Timothy, now warn them before God about quarreling, about words. Do you attend another church and do you never hear warnings from the pulpit? Well, then, it isn't a New Testament church. Because the New Testament is full of warnings, isn't it? And uh, one reason it's full of warnings is because there are the strangers that are present. There are unbelievers who have wandered in, and they must be alerted as to the fact that they are sinners. That when their lives are placed in the presence of the Holy One, then they are sins are seen by God that they've not loved God with their hearts and they've not loved their neighbors as themselves and then church members need to be warned Christians who've been Christians for many years still need to be warned the Lord Jesus spoke to his disciples and he said to his disciples remember Lot's wife And he did it to strengthen their resistance to the power of remaining sin. The highway code is not for non-drivers. It's for those who drive and drive every day. See the traffic signs. You go over Plinliman and head towards Shrewsbury in the car and you'll meet signs. Zigzag bends. Traffic lights ahead. All kinds of warning signs, floods, and so on. And if you're a wise motorist, you'll say, Oh, why why do we have these warning signs? You know, it's a good thing. It prepares you to slow down for what lies ahead. They help us. The warnings of 
the Bible help us? They help us to live the Christian life. We're glad they're there. When Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, no, don't pray like the Pharisees prayed. Don't give like the Pharisees gave. Don't fast with signs of your fasting, ash on your head. Don't do that. Go to a secret place so that God only can see. And these warnings are designed to keep us right in the middle of the narrow road that leads to heaven. And if you, if you care less about things like that, then you're not caring about your souls. And you're not caring about living a life that's pleasing to your heavenly Father. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And there's progress in our text, an unbridled tongue. And then it goes on to godless chatter. And then it results in people becoming more and more ungodly. And then things get worse. The ideas spread then that you have spoken, and they spread like gangrene spreads up the legs from the toes. And men wander from the truth. They even deny the resurrection of the body. And then finally, the faith of some is destroyed. And Paul says, I'll name names. I want you to beware of Hymenaeus and Philetus. They started so well and they ended so ill. Men who teach a spiritual resurrection. They repudiate. They deny the physical resurrection. That hope. So damnable error starts harmlessly, uh, chattering godlessly, quarreling about words, and it ends in the place of woe. So warn them, he says, warn them before God about the first risings of sin. If you have tasted the sweetness of bad-mouthing someone, it is time then to act, to mortify that sweetness, to make it bitter. Calvin says on these words, since the contagion is so destructive, we must attack it early and not wait until it's gathered strength by progress, for then there'll be no time to give it assistance. Now, I'm bringing you the law of God. And that's good. Because the law is a schoolmaster and it will bring us all to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was never guilty of quarreling about words, an endless, godless chatter. His yea was yea. His nay was nay. He spoke plainly and he spoke directly. He never tried to be clever or superior. He never bore false witness. He told his hearers that what he said to them was true. And he was truth. He was never namby-pamby. He was never smooth talking and lovey-dovey he talked about Herod that cruel man who'd had the head of John the Baptist cut off at a whim when um, a girl danced before him and he gave her whatever she asked for and she asked for the head of John the Baptist on the that fox Herod Jesus said he talked about the Pharisees who were heaping burdens on people and he said about the Pharisees, that they are a den of snakes.
He fulfilled all righteousness in his life by what he did and by what he said. All righteousness. We are saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are saved by his righteous words. Every one of them. They are imputed to us when we stand before God. There'll be so much that we will be ashamed of. But we say, ah, all of that. I never prayed a prayerless, a sinless prayer. I never preached a sinless sermon. I never spoke a word of witness that didn't have some sin and some pride in it. All my words need forgiveness. None of Jesus' words needed forgiveness at all. He fulfilled that righteousness which is mine as a gift of God. And when he died on the cross, he took the judgment that my foolish words merit. My proud words, my boasting, my cowardly silences, my complaints for speaking the truth but maliciously to a wrong end for my doubtful expressions, for my lies and slander, for telling tales, for whispering, for my mocking, for my rash and harsh words, for speaking too highly of myself, for speaking not highly enough of myself, for aggravating small faults, for excusing our sins, for raising false rumors, for receiving false reports, for stopping our ears against a just defense, for rejoicing in the disgrace of others. How many have been hurt by our words, but the judgment of hell that our words deserve, Jesus bore in his own body on the cross. The curse that falls upon all such bad language fell on Jesus and not on us. We're saved by him and so we can go to that place then where the words are all loving and the words are all pure and the words are all patient and kind and peaceful and gentle and good trusting words, meek words. And there we will never hurt another person by our words. Don't you see that by your words you will be condemned and by your words you will be justified when you go to God and you say, here I am, I'm a sinner, there's no hope in anything that I'll ever say or do that can give me the glories of forgiveness and heaven. I just trust in Jesus Christ. My hopes are in him, his Perfect lips and words and life. Please justify me and accept me because of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The warning that comes here then. That Timothy is to be faithful and to warn the people about putting a guard, a watch on their lips. And then the other thing. Timothy, how you are to present yourself to God unashamed. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. All right, let's break that up 
and see then what the Holy Spirit is telling us, how we are to live our lives too. You are to present yourself to God. That's the first thing he says. Okay, that's the first thing. You are to present yourself to God. You did it the first time, the first definitive way when you went to God. And you said, here am I, Lord. I don't know much about you. I, I haven't got much faith. But I know I've come to the end of my tether and there's no hope for me and I'm guilty. And, and you ask God to be your saviour. Just like the mythical man, Robinson Crusoe, did. Daniel Defoe knew all about that. You put yourself under the control of God in his service from now on to do his will. From now on you are under his lordship. You belong to Jesus. He's your master. Here I am, most blessed son of God. Francis Ridley Havergal, you know, she said it. Oh, use me, Lord. Use even me, just as thou wilt and when and where. Until thy blessed face I see, I rest, I joy, thy glory share. That's, that was her way of presenting herself to God. Or you think then of the words of Philip Doddridge. My gracious Lord, I own thy right to every service I can pay and call it my supreme delight to heed thy dictates and obey. Now, this is a crucial theme, isn't it? About presenting yourself to God. 11 chapters of Romans goes by. and Wonderful, supreme theology in all its glory. And then chapter 12, there's a change of emphasis. He turns to Christians. And he says, because of all these mercies that you've had from God, I beseech you, present. Same word as here. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. That's, what, that's the response to what God has done for you. You present your bodies, your hands, now are going to work for him. Your eyes are going to see the things that are needed, things that are pure and good. Your lips are going to speak his praise. Your feet are going to be anxious to run in doing his service. Your voice is going to speak for him. You present your body, a living sacrifice, to him. So at the start of every week then you go to church and you, you, you expect the word of God to cut you into shape again. To rebuke you, correct you and train you in righteousness. To make the promises real to you. And then uh, each day you begin the day and you say, Lord, here I am again. Uh, take my life, take my heart, my affections. Help me to work for you. Let every hour of this day be to your glory. You say to God... Everything I've done to do it with all my might for you. You want the very best to give to God. That's what you do. You present yourself to God. And you do it diligently. You know the authorized version says, it's a famous verse. And I knew it. Every student knows it because it starts study in the authorized version. Study to show thyself approved unto God. But of course, it's got nothing to do with intellectual and academic exercise at all. It means being earnest. It means being serious-minded. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ isn't a hobby that you pick up on, on your way to the gig. 
The NIV translates it, do your best. Well, I think that's it's a sort of tame sort of translation, isn't it? A cliché translation. It's a bit flat. Paul talks about being in earnest. Being in earnest about presenting yourself to God. Earnestly present yourself to God. You've had a summons from the king and you go to, you go to the royal palace. You go and you present yourself there and uh, imagine that uh, he can summon you, that he wants to see you, that he wants to use you, that he's pleased to see you, that he says, come up to London and see me. There's a series, you present yourself, then you're there. If it says 11 o'clock, you're there 5 to 11, waiting to be admitted. And then secondly, it says you present yourself as one approved by God. In other words, God has made it possible for you to come to him. God has done everything that's necessary. God has cleared away uh, the, the contamination and the filth and the alienation and his feelings of anger towards all that is contrary to what he is. God has dealt with it. He's taken all that away and he's laid it to his son, Jesus Christ. And he's made it possible for you to approach him. And so uh, the monarch says to the sentries on duty, when uh, Jeff Thomas comes, then I want him to be admitted. He says to the policemen that are there on guard at the gates, let him in. And they won't turn you away because your name has been given to them. You've been justified by grace. You have been washed you have been sanctified, you have been justified, and the doors open and you are welcomed into his presence. Jesus Christ has bought the divine approval of God and given it to you. Like the soldier that Paul refers to earlier in this chapter in, in verse 4, whose supreme concern is to please his commanding officer. Then you know as a Christian, I'm approved by God. God approves of me. God approves of me because of Jesus Christ, because I'm joined to him, because of all that Jesus has done. My name is written on his heart. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He came down from heaven to prepare me for acceptance by God. And then thirdly, you present yourself to God as a workman as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You see that? Who does God approve of? Does he approve of beautiful people like Oscar Knight in Hollywood? And these ravishing gowns and these beautiful women and these handsome men in their tuxedos? Does God say, oh, I'll have some of them? Not many of them. Uh, is it like the Nobel Prize giving and uh, the awards then for scientific progress and peace and literature and God says, ah, I'll have some of them, not many of them at all. Are they like the sportsmen then, glowing in their fitness, trained to an ounce of, of surplus fat? And there they are. And they receive the gold medal and the, the national anthem is sung as they weep. Not many of them. They're workmen. That's whom God wants us to show effort to be approved of being workmen. 
They're farm labourers. They're miners, they're steel workers. My, my father's church, Bethania in Dallas, it had a, a Tuesday night prayer meeting. There were some men there who worked in the steel mills. They came, as soon as the shift was over, they came and they still had their leather aprons on. And they came to the prayer meeting in their leather aprons. And they prayed with such earnestness and power. Fifty years later, as a little boy, I heard the men speaking as they counted the money after the Sunday evening service. My father was the treasurer and they were counting the money. And they talked about, do you remember him? And they gave his name, I've forgotten his name. How he prayed, that workman. Shop assistants, road sweepers, fishermen, navvies, refuse collectors, traffic wardens, nurses, teachers. Men occupied in all weathers, working, necessary, unglamorous work. You remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said, that the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. So what are we to do? We are to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers, workmen, into the harvest. Men and women in love with work whose meat and drink is to labor for the Lord, who get weary and worn working for the Lord. You see, you read the lives of the great heroes. You read the, the biographies that there are. And uh, there's one thing that you admire about the biographies of the, the great men of God for the last 2,000 years. And they were all workmen. They all worked hard. There was Luther and, uh, and 90 volumes of his works. Calvin, just a few less, not much less. The workmen of Bunyan and Owen and George Whitfield and John Wesley with their tiring, tireless preaching. William Carey, and Hudson Taylor, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones. I have seven feet of the books of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Keith Underhill, whatever characterized his labors for 40 years in Kenya, labor, work, characterized them. They all labored for the Lord. There will be no sluggards in heaven. Only laborers, unashamed of rough, calloused hands, lined faces, blue scars, marks on their bodies. The simple trust in everything that the Lord did and they obeyed the Lord. They presented their bodies to the Lord. They labored for the Lord. Fourthly, you present yourself to God as one who correctly handles the word of truth. You go straight to the word of truth. Now, there's an interesting word here, the interesting Greek word. You'll know the first couple of syllables. Orthotomeo. It means to divide rightly. It, it, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean to divide rightly. That's what the authorized version says. It means to cut straight. Orthodoxy is uh, being straight in your doctrine. You can see the UCCF doctrinal basis and you sign it. You're straight in your doctrine. You get your teaching straight. 
Orthopraxis is upright, straight living. Orthodontia is getting straight teeth, correcting abnormalities. You know what orthopedics is, curing deformities in the bones. This word, orthotromeo, is the only place in the New Testament where you find this word. It's also found in the Greek um, Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, in two places, uh, Proverbs 3, 6, make straight your paths. There it is, ortho, straight. Proverbs eleven five: the righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way. And so here we are with Hymenaeus and Philetus. They started off so well. And then they imbibed Greek philosophy and Greek ideals that the importance was the spirit, it wasn't the body. They disparage the resurrection of the body. The the soul goes marching on. That's that's what they said. They wandered from the truth. They talked of the resurrection in symbolic terms. They weren't talking straight. So Paul is saying, Timothy, tell it to them straight. Go straight to the word of God. And then take the word of God and go straight to them, to each one of them. Go as directly, as fast as as an arrow goes from the bow into their hearts and minds and consciences and affections. Be accurate, be plain and simple. You're not in the ministry to make friends and buddies. You are there to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, men who will go out to Kenya and give all the best long decades of their lives to serving God there. You're there to rescue people from hell. Be straight with the congregation. So we are left with the questions. What has God said? And the question. What does it mean? And when there is. That is ascertained. When that is known. Then there is nothing more for us to do. But to obey. And adore. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that thou wilt help us then um, to guard our tongues in what we say. Put a, a guard on our lips this week, we pray, and in every conversation. And then we pray for graciousness and boldness to speak your word. And then, Lord, we also pray that we may, may be Workmen who don't need to be ashamed, who keep straight the word of God and speak it, and that we are zealous to do these things. Make us such genuine, real Christians. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.